0: Father, we thank you again for your grace that you continue to pour out to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his ministry in our midst and teaching us more about you. Uh, We thank you for your ministry in particular through Garland and thank you that it was such a wonderful influence on this particular local body. We ask now that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts once again to Scripture as the authoritative standard that you've given us, the compass um, by which to orient our lives. And we ask this through Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> time we introduced the prophets, prophetic section, the great, usually unread section of the Bible. And um, we mentioned that there were major prophets and minor prophets, major prophets, the big three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Major because they're major. Major sections of Scripture. Um, We mentioned the minor prophets. Gave you a little silly way of remembering them. Um, Sixteen of these books. Three major and thirteen minor. Gee, do I see somebody from Connecticut here tonight? (laughs) Um and uh, what i want to do tonight is we're going to get into the heart of this prophetic material and the problem is that we're going to we're covering so much material so fast um, and that's the unfortunate problem of this particular way we're approaching it in thursday night classes is topical rather than verse by verse approach uh, but it'll demand a little focusing on your part um, tonight, uh, but I think you'll find it worth it. Um, once again, to get into that material and set our, uh, our minds in the right frame of reference, uh, let's just review by going back again to where we've come from, that uh, we have the original events of scripture, the creation, fall, flood, and covenant, that this is a foundation We've called it the buried foundation because mankind, through sin, has tried to break, it, bury it, and suppress it. Then we went on in history beyond this on this side of the flood, and we said that there was, we could summarize the Old Testament events from the time of the call of Abraham to the time of David by calling it the disruptive kingdom. And the reason we use that adjective, a disruptive kingdom, is because God is disrupting the way depraved men organize their civilization. Since the Tower of Babel, man has wanted security, he has wanted his life, he has wanted everything in his terms. Don't bother me, God. And I want my life to run the way I want it and I don't want anything to interfere. So, therefore, by definition, given that as the basis of our depraved hearts, any work that God does is disruptive. So that's why we call it the disruptive kingdom. It disrupts sin because it represents an interference, an intrusion of God into the life of man. Then we have looked at a series of events, and we'll have that overhead transparency sometime when I get my son to run it off in PowerPoint. Um, But we're looking at a period of history from the time of Solomon. We've looked at the golden era of Solomon. See, I want to see why that doesn't focus down there. Um, We have looked at the kingdom divided... We are looking at the kingdoms in decline, kingdoms, plural. And the next event we're going to move to will be the exile, the end of the kingdoms. These are the events now, roughly from 900, 930 B.C. on to the exile, the exile of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. So you can see we're approaching ever more closely to the days of the New Testament and the arrival on the planet of the God, man, Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is all preparatory to the Gospels. But it's a very uh, critical hunk of history here. Um, You can see God wrote 16 books. He only wrote four for the life of Christ. So that tells you something. And yet rarely do we ever study these books. And so, we want to look at the material tonight, and um, I want to, if you'll turn in your notes to page um, 41. We so far have gone into the material to show you how much the prophets analyzed history in terms of the covenants. One of the great operations that's going on in all this time period of all these events as a ministry of these people called prophets. And I'm afraid a lot of us have a wrong view of what these men are about. And so that's why we have spent considerable time last week and a lot of time this week defining what these guys did. They were very, very critical in the revelation of God. Their ministry, the prophetic ministry, gave God's viewpoint of what he was doing in history. These men actually constitute historians in the true sense of the word. What we study in in school for history is a very wimpy, uh, abbreviated version of real historical analysis. Because inevitably, when you get a book on history, wherever it is, whatever course you've taken in campus, whatever course you take in high school, history is being interpreted in terms of economics, political power, always in terms of some structure of man. These guys interpreted history in the light of a particular set of documents. The Torah, the first five books of the scripture, gave these guys the base. And what, what was their base is called the law. That's why Jesus referred to three parts of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. These are the, this is the second great chunk of material in the Old Testament. But it builds on the law. And the law revealed covenants to man. And we've emphasized this from uh, two years ago. We emphasized it last year. And... Tonight, you're going to see why all that time I was emphasizing covenants. So again, let's just review something else before we get into it. Um, Let's remember what a covenant is. A covenant is exactly the same word, doesn't differ in meaning whatsoever, from our word contract. So get used to thinking of this. The problem of using the vocabulary word covenant is it it sounds too religious. And we get used to using this religious uh, vocabulary and we lose the content because we just keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, and then forgetting what we're talking about. So let's substitute the word contract here. And just for the sake of tonight, uh, we're going to talk in terms of contracts. we said there were several contracts. We talked about the Noahic contract. That was between God and the entire human race, saved and unsaved alike. So there's a covenant that goes to all men, regardless of whether they've accepted Christ or not. They're still under the Noahic covenant. doesn't make any difference. whether so they respond to the gospel. They don't respond to the gospel. Their lives are controlled by a covenant. The second covenant we studied was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that was an elective covenant, and it was made only with Abraham and his seed. The problem is, it isn't obvious who the seed are until history unfolds. The hint about who his seed uh, is is the first one. Remember in the Bible, what's the principle of interpretation when you get to a vocabulary word in the scriptures? Always look at the context of the first time it occurs. It sets up for all the other times the word occurs. So the first time that the word seed occurs in the sense that you see it is between what great struggle in Abraham and Sarah's personal life, whether they're going to have a baby or not. And what's the struggle? It's over Ishmael versus Isaac. And what's true of Isaac, the first seed? It's supernatural. Isaac is born of Abraham in the sense that he's a Jew. He carries the genes of his dad and his mom. So he is a physical seed of Abraham. We're not getting spooky and interpreted as some spiritual seed or something. No, that's a physical seed. The question is though, it's a physical seed that came into existence in a supernatural way. And then Jacob, and then Jacob's son, the 12 tribes, and then you have the nation, and so forth. So, all this constitutes this term, the seed of Abraham. And then we said this contract was an elective contract. Remember, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And it's an elective contract that promises a land, a seed, and a worldwide blessing. Now, tonight. Hold on because look at that structure real carefully because in the next 20 to 25 minutes we're going to fill up those three parts of the Abrahamic covenant and pull this together for you so you can see what the prophets are all about, what they're doing. But these guys are building on each of these three promises. Very important to see that. After the Exodus, God makes another contract with the nation and this is the Sinaitic covenant or the covenant of Moses. Or the law. The difference. What is the difference between these two contracts? Very profound difference between these two contracts. The Abrahamic covenant is a sovereign declaration of what God is going to do, period. The Sinaitic covenant is a contingent covenant. It is a conditional contract that stipulates blessing or cursing depending on the choice of the nation. The nation will be free to choose whether or not they're going to obey God, the great King, Jehovah, Yahweh. And they're free to obey Him or disobey Him, but they're not free to dictate the consequences of their choice. So, yes, they are free to choose and submit, and they're going to be blessed. Or they can rebel, and they're going to be cursed. So, that's the Sinaitic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, last time in preparation for tonight, we said that this creates a tension in Old Testament doctrine. A tension that goes all the way into the New Testament. And here's the tension. The dilemma is, if God conditions blessing, which He clearly does upon the nation, it's conditional on their obedience. Here's the rub. Here's the, here's the rub. If this is conditional, but the Abrahamic covenant says God is going to bring it about, how do you pull these two covenants together without eradicating human responsibility? See, we're right back with sovereignty and human responsibility. Because God's holiness, remember remember the attributes of God. God is sovereign, God is holy, God is love, Uh, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, eternal. God doesn't change his character. These are his attributes. Those attributes are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has integrity, and he doesn't violate his integrity because he gets wimpy and emotional and feels sorry for somebody. His character remains the same. So the covenants that are structured on his character can't change. And God is showing in the Sinaitic covenant, in particular, his attribute of what he expects by way of righteousness. And holiness, and he's not going to compromise that. He is not going to change the standard. He's not going to lower it because he gets outvoted. Or because somebody else wants to say, well, we believe the standard ought to be this. God doesn't care what we believe because the standard is his character. And he's not going to change. So we can forget any notion whatsoever that his righteousness or his holiness is going to change because we don't like it or we feel bad, or it makes us depressed, or whatever. doesn't make any difference. can't change. Because God can't change. So the Sinaitic covenant establishes, on the basis of God's character, what holiness looks like. And how human beings relate to holiness. If we relate properly, we're blessed. If we relate in disobedience, we're cursed. The Sinaitic, the Abrahamic covenant, relates to His sovereignty. Because the Abrahamic covenant is a declaration of what God in His sovereignty is going to do in history. It doesn't make any difference what economics do. It doesn't make any difference what politics are doing. It doesn't make any difference about all the human conspiracies, political dealings, backroom negotiations, or whatever. None of it is going to change God's sovereign will for history, period. Now the Third Reich in the late 30s and 40s thought they were going to break the Abrahamic Covenant by annihilating the Jew. We've always had these clowns in history that get arrogant and they think they're going to determine history and they pass some political thing and they go after the Jews. The Jews are the fault of everybody, you know? We got crooked teeth, somehow the Jews are involved in it. And so It's always the Jewish fault. And it's always the voice of Satan coming out in these things. And what it is, is his animosity toward Israel because Israel has a future role in world history. If Satan can destroy the seed of Abraham, he can cancel out his doom, he thinks. Now already he's lost round one. Because as hard as he tried to destroy the Jew from history, which Jew made it to the cross and undermined Satan's claim? The Lord Jesus Christ. So he's already lost round one. Now, the next thing he's going to try to do is if you can remove Israel from history, you can remove the condition of the return of Christ. Because Christ isn't going to return until they say, He said in Jerusalem, until they say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the blessed and the blessings are Israel. And until Israel invites the Lord Jesus back into the stage of history, he won't return. So, now we have a situation where Satan, obviously, to prevent that, the way he can do it is destroy Israel, annihilate the Jew. So, all this hinges on this covenant structure. And on page 41, I quote from an Old Testament theologian, just to show you that I'm not just drawing this out of thin air. Let's look at the quote carefully at the bottom, page 41. Thinking in terms of how these prophets operated in history, in terms of covenants and contracts. A clear divine will becomes discernible, which can be depended upon and to which appeal can be made. The covenant knows not only of a demand, but also of a promise. You shall be my people, I will be your God. In this way it provides... Now watch this. Watch this carefully. Let's go through it real slow, because this is the essence of a biblically correct view of history, and this is not just for history class, it's for our personal lives, because our life, your life, and all the events of your personal individual life is a small part of history. So if it applies to history, it applies to you, it applies to me, it applies in all of our life. So this is very critical, we see this, this is a biblically correct way of looking at life. In this way, it provides life with a goal and and history with a meaning. Because of this, the fear that constantly haunts the pagan world, the fear of arbitrariness and caprice within the Godhead is excluded. With this God, men know exactly where they stand, an atmosphere of trust and security is created. Now, let's go back to this chart of these what, what the prophets are doing in this period of time. All these events are happening. And if you read these 16 books of the prophets... You come away with, gosh, now, this is where people, you know, that never read the Bible, but they always listen to somebody who says they read the Bible somewhere along the line. They go to some class in the Bible or something, and they get this view, the God of the Old Testament is a meanie. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. But the God of the New Testament is a loving, gracious God. Now, I don't know where they have ever gotten this from. I used to believe that, by the way, I was taught that in college, until I started studying the Old Testament. And once you study the Bible, you wonder, Jesus, these guys read? I mean, you know, the Bible is in English. Try reading it sometime. It's not a different God between the Old and New Testaments. And the God of the Old Testament is a very, very gracious God. Now, the impression that these guys get from his severity is these events and what's happening, the suffering that's going on here. But let's think about it. Look at this quote. Notice at the last sentence of the quote, With this God, men know exactly where they stand. An atmosphere of trust and security is created. Now that goes back to a simple thing like parenting. You know, when, um, I guess for the last 30 or 40 years, every parent has heard of Dr. Spock. And I don't mean Space Odyssey. Uh, um, And it was always... Benjamin Spock was going to raise kids and don't, you know, don't spank them and don't do this and don't do that because you might warp their personality and this, you know, all these theories. And it's interesting, you talk to Christians who are deep into psychology and and so on from a biblical point of view, and they say, you know what came out of all that historically in people's lives? The children that were raised in a very promiscuous environment are profoundly insecure as adults. Now, why is that? Let's just think about that in light of this. Yes, there's suffering going on here. But what's very predictable about it? Isn't this a predictable suffering? It's not arbitrary. These people don't wake up, and then all of a sudden they come down with pneumonia tomorrow, out of the clear blue. God has promised a frame of reference. Disobey me, and I'm going to spank you. And then he spanks them as a big surprise. Well, it's no surprise. That's what he said he was going to do, and he's just doing it. Now, that sounds cruel to to really. Some modern minds really think this is all cruel stuff here. But think about it. It really is not cruel. What is cruel is not caring enough to do it. That's cruelty. And here God cares for his people. This is a caring God here. This is not a cruel God. This is not an arbitrary God. This is a God who loves His people, and He wants His people to be in shape to enjoy Him forever. And He knows they're not going to get in shape to enjoy them forever without going through a disciplinary process. And the disciplinary process is all foreordained in the Torah. Now tonight, we're going to start with two themes that the prophets emphasized. The first one begins on the bottom of page 41. And we're going to, if you turn in your Old Testaments to Isaiah 36, we're going to go rapidly through this exciting passage of Old Testament history. The first theme that the prophet had, they each guy had his own style, but if you read the different books, they, you'll see these themes again and again. First one, bottom page 41. The first theme that I'm pointing out that these guys did in their own way, each guy in his own generation, uh, pressed with his own political situation, said Yahweh, or the Jehovah, or the Lord, rules surrounding pagan nations as much as He ruled Israel and Judah. Do you know why? Let's ask a question. Why is that important? Why is it important for the nation Israel to know that? Well, the answer is, is because they're getting spanked. The answer is, they're getting disciplined by Syria, out to the northeast further, Assyria is coming in, and these people are getting disciplined, and they're undergoing military defeat. Their armies are getting slaughtered. They're they're, uh, experiencing ecological problems. You know, we think we El Nino's bet see what God did to the northern southern kingdom. So it's important that while they're going through the disciplinary process, that they understand that the paddle that's smacking them is controlled. It's, it's like the Assyrians have the paddle. So the Assyrian hand is on the paddle. But what Israel needs to see is that behind the Assyrians, God is on top of the Assyrians who are on the paddle. And they have to understand that this discipline is controlled. So we want to now go to an Old Testament incident that happened that shows in a very dramatic way how the prophets, at the moment this sort of issue came up, they dealt with it, they dealt with it quickly, and they dealt with it very clearly. And it was recorded by the Holy Spirit for our edification, and it's just a tremendous lesson. Isaiah 36. Um, By the way, just a footnote, we don't have time to prove this to you, but if you'll uh, take your pencil or pen and mark in the margin, right on top page 42, the, the passage 2 Kings 18, verses 17 and following. 2 Kings 18, 17 and following. Go back there after the lesson tonight or sometime and look at it, and you'll notice a very strange thing. The exact text of Isaiah 36 is repeated in 2 Kings 18, word for word, verse for verse. Why do I point that out? To show you the prophets are the same guys that wrote the history. Who do you think wrote 2 Kings? Who wrote 1 Kings? The prophets. So don't think of the history books like Kings and Samuel as distinct from... These 16 books we just said are prophetic books. Remember I showed you one night, I brought the Hebrew Bible in here, and I said, folks, there's that prophetic section in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. And guess what's in the prophetic section? Kings and Samuel. Because the prophets wrote those. Okay, now let's look at Isaiah 36 and get the gist of what's going on here. Here's the deal. This occurs after the loss of Israel. So cross in your mind out all the orange territory on this map. Visualize the nation left now only in green. And the king in the south is Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah faces a big problem at this point because historically the enemy of Israel on the northeast side was Syria or Aramea. A-R-A-M-I-A. Aramea. But Aramea has been eclipsed, in turn, by an even greater enemy northeast of her. And that greater enemy is Assyria. So don't confuse Assyria with Syria. Assyria was a major, major power. These guys were nasty guys, occupying the area of Iraq today. And they came down, very cruel way, and they destroyed the northern kingdom. The date for this destruction is 721. So the northern kingdom lasts 200 years from 930 to 721. The Assyrians came down, and then the Assyrian king was called at this time Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib was a typical Middle Eastern arrogant tyrant. And in the passage I'm about to show you, in his arrogance and cockiness, he really manifested a satanic spirit. And it was a terrifying moment for the south because it looked like, for a while, he was going to take out the south along with the north. And so, chapter 36 of Isaiah picks up the scene, right at the time Sennacherib has sent his ambassadors to propagandize... See, they didn't have CNN and all the media in those days. But they had their propaganda machine nevertheless. And in chapter 36 of Isaiah, here comes Sennacherib's propaganda machine. Came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he seized them. So, what he's done, clever military strategy, is the Jews had defense cities around their border. So, he's taken out all these small cities. Well, guess what he's doing? I mean, He's picking off the defense cities for what luscious little plum does he want next? Jerusalem. So he's already done this and now the king of Assyria sent Reb Shaka from Lachish, Lachish was one of the defense cities it fell, to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household and Shebna the scribe and Jonah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. Say now, said Rebeshaka to Hezekiah, Thus said the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say, Your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely? Now watch the theme here. Just watch the theme. This guy is going to make one big strategic goof, and it's going to get him in deep trouble but watch the propaganda. This is exactly how Satan gets to us. This is the voice of Satan coming to us through the propaganda machine of this pagan king, and watch the strategy of Satan to undermine our trust in the Lord to take care of our needs. It starts right out in verse 4. Right there is the issue. What is this confidence that you have? Your counsel and strength for war? They're empty words. On whom are you going to rely? You've rebelled against me. Behold, you rely on the staff of a crushed reed. You rely on a deal with Egypt, huh? Well, the Assyrians took on Egypt and they whipped them. And that was scary because Egypt was a big power. And for the Assyrian army to come in and beat Pharaoh's army meant that they were the big boys on the block now. So he says, go ahead, make an alliance with Egypt. And while he's saying this, He's doing it, by the way, in verse 2, on the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. That sounds like a little note. But the idea there is Hezekiah is walled in the city. All the citizens of Jerusalem are on the wall and they can hear this thing going on. So there's method in his madness. He gets his propaganda machine up and he wants to break the spirit of the people. Now, he says, verse 8, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to set riders on them. See the sarcasm? You know, I give you, but you can't even find 2,000 people around here that can ride them if I gave them to you. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Now I have come up without Yahweh's approval against this land to destroy it, the Lord said, go up against this land, destroy it. See, the, the, he's manipulating. See, they already know some of the word. All, some of the Old Testament. Did good intel, by the way, there. And um, But Reb Shaka said, oh, verse 11. Now, here's the Jews. See, they're out in the bottom and they realize this guy's shouting and if he shouts much more, all these people are going to hear this kind of thing and they're going to get dispirited and discouraged. So Eliakim and Shebna and Joash said to Reb Shaka, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we will understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, and the hearing of the people are on the wall. The Assyrians were multilingual. They had their guys out there. They spoke in Hebrew for one reason. Propaganda. Put it in the common language of the people. But the, whole area, the whole attempt of this dialogue is to repudiate the central faith of the southern kingdom and get people to be so scared that they have seen the Assyrian machine to eat up the northern kingdom. They wiped out the Egyptian army. I mean, they have reason. If you look at it from the human point of view, they got a reason to be shaking in their boots right now. Because you know what the Assyrians do? They, they thought it was a joke to spread eagle you on the ground, take a knife and peel your skin off. This is how, they thought that was fun. So this is what these people behind the wall are worried about. What's going to happen next? Do these guys mean business? So it's a real test of whose presupposition is going to control this thing. Rabshakeh says, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? See, this guy, they mean business. Language of the street, it communicates, see? That's Old Testament. That's why, by the way, most pastors don't want to teach the Old Testament. Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, See, he deliberately does this. You ask me to speak in Aramaic? No, I'm going to speak in Hebrew so everybody can hear me and I'm going to speak it real loud so all you thousands of people up on the wall can hear what I'm saying. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah... Now, here's where he screws up. See, had he threatened Hezekiah, that would have been one thing. But these clowns always overdo it, just like Goliath. And that the moment they overdo it, that's when they, they cut their news, cut the limb off that they're, they're on. Don't listen to Hezekiah, and don't let him trust have you trust in Jehovah saying, "The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given in the hand of." That's exactly what Hezekiah was doing. Now watch his argument here. Watch the argument. This, if, if you were sitting there and you were a weak believer, and you listened to this stuff and your family was sitting back there, you might be very inclined to start making deals here, bailing out. But look at the argument. Verse 19. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpat? Where are the gods of the Seberim? And when, did they, when have they delivered Samaria from My hand? Who among all the gods of these lands had delivered their land from My land, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem My hand? And they were silent and they didn't answer him. See, it's a challenge. So now, here we have a leader, and it's a picture of a leader who is a believer in a big jam, and how he handles, how he responds to the jam. Now, let's look at this. You want a role model? Here's a great role model. And King Hezekiah heard it. He tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. So the first thing he does is he's not going to answer these clowns. He is not going to dialogue on their basis. He's going to get back, pull out of the situation, and get with the Lord. Great maneuver. Because if he stands in that wall, he's going to get out and maneuver it if he doesn't do this. So he comes back to the temple. We're going to have a little chit-chat session here with the Lord about this one. And then he sent Eliakim who was over the household of Shebna And and to Isaiah. See, there's the role of the prophet. Isaiah is a very powerful prophet now. He's being consulted. And they said, thus says Hezekiah, and he describes the whole situation. Verse 5, The servants of King Hezekiah come to Isaiah. And Isaiah says, Now here is a word from the Lord through a prophet in the middle of a historic crisis. Now watch what's going to happen. Isaiah says, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. You see that language? You see what's happened here? There's a bigger thing going on than just Hezekiah and the Jews at stake. Hezekiah and the Jews are associated with Jehovah God in the eyes of the pagans. The pagan mind can't separate the people of God from God. We are identified with our God. And the attacks that Satan motivates against you, and against us as a body, are motivated not because necessarily he has it in for you personally. The attacks come because we are flying the flag of the Savior, and he's shooting at the flag. That's why the stuff's incoming. It's because the flag is the target. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ is what, uh, what attracts the satanic lightning. It's not something personal. It's in principle he wants to oppose everything that God is doing. And so, here Isaiah picks it up. He tells Hezekiah, look, the servants of the king of Syria haven't tried to just spook the citizens of Jer- Jer- uh, Jerusalem. That's not the issue. They have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's a pretty short prophecy. And to make a long story short, because we don't have time tonight to go through all the details of this, he says, You'll say to the king of Judah, Do not to God in whom you trust, and so on and so on. It's because they're going to go away. Well, what happens is that Hezekiah, verse 14. Now, second thing that Hezekiah does. First thing, he goes to the temple gets a word from God through the prophet. What would be analogous for us today when we're getting ourselves in a jam like that? Who wrote this? Word of the prophets. All right, verse 14, Hezekiah took the letter. Look what he does now. This is such a neat picture. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers. This is the ultimatum in the diplomatic pouch delivered by the Assyrian diplomats. He took the wood to God. We had people in our country that would do this. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord and look what he did. Isn't this neat? Look what he did. He spread it out before the Lord. Go ahead, Lord, take a look at this. And he laid the whole thing out before God. And then he starts to pray. Now look at this prayer. This prayer tells us several things that's happened in Hezekiah's head. He's really got his act together here. This guy is is hitting on all cylinders. He he responds to the crisis the proper way. He doesn't panic. He goes to the Lord. He isn't, I mean, it's not that he's passive. I mean, he's upset. He's one upset person. No denying the emotions. But he doesn't let his emotions rule. His spirit dictates that he has to have time with the Lord about this, and he has determined he is going to have time with the Lord about this, whether he is emotional or he isn't emotional, or whatever his emotions are. they're irrelevant. He's got to have time with the Lord. So he has, spends time with the Lord. He gets this word promise in verse seven from the Lord that the Lord's going to deal with this situation. And now he's motivated to pray. Verse 16 begins a wonderful prayer. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubs, Thou art God, Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made heaven and earth. And what event and doctrine does He go to first? First one, creation. Why? Because the creation defines the nature of God. And you can't pray to a God without a clear idea of Him being created. Go right back to basics. So right in the first part of his prayer, he's, he's hitting the framework. He comes in, he goes to the creation, he says, God, you have made heaven and earth. If God made heaven and earth, God made the Assyrian. See what it does? It reduces the Assyrian down to a molecule. You made the molecules, you made the Assyrians. The issue is, I now know that you are creator, I'm remembering that, and I believe that. And that puts you in charge of this situation. Truly, O Lord. And now he has another neat thing. And and by the way, he's laid this thing out. Notice what he says in verse 17. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thy eyes, Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Reminds you of David. Remember what David said? Who's this clown, this uncircumcised Philistine that thinks he can defy the armies of the living God? So David didn't take Goliath as a personal enemy. What angered David in his spirit was what Goliath was doing to the nature of God. Falsifying the nature of that made David in his spirit angry. That's righteous anger. And Hezekiah here has righteous anger. And notice in verse 17 also something else about Old Testament praying. Did you see this in the Psalms? Very powerfully. Um... These guys, when they went into God's presence, were very insistent that God listen to them. Now, you know, we, we get kind of very pious about this, and we kind of feel embarrassed about walking in the Lord and telling him, Hey, listen to me. Just open your eyes and listen. I want you to read this. It sounds impudent to our ears. But whether it sounds impudent to our ears or not, it's in the Psalms repeatedly. And the only thing I can conclude with, it seems like God overlooks the impudence maybe associated with that just because the guy's got it together. I mean, he's doing the right thing. He's coming to the Lord. So how he comes to the Lord isn't as much of an issue as the fact that he does come to the Lord. He's angry. He's upset. So he says, Now you hear this, Lord, and you look at this letter, and I'm laying it right out in front of you. Now read it. You see what he's done, Lord? He's reproaching you. And then he comes up with this neat, neat explanation because remember what the insult was? Well, where are the gods of Hamath? Where are the gods of Arphat? And this, this diplomat. But what Hezekiah said, yeah, I know. Their gods couldn't defend them, but here's why. And verse 18 and 19 says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands. He's not denying that. They've cast their gods into the fire. For they were not God's, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they destroyed them. Of course they have. But now, O Lord God, deliver us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that Thou alone, Lord, are God. Now that's biblical praying. And I tell you, it's hard to get into this, but when you do, you know you're you're rocking in the prayer. Because... What has started out as a political crisis that could have been treated just as a purely a political crisis, a negotiation problem. See what's happened? It's attained cosmic significance now. He's not praying this prayer just to get himself off the hook. He's not praying this prayer just so I can look like a great Judean king. He's not praying the prayer just to help the people that are, you know, falling apart on the wall. He's not doing it just for that. He's cut to the quick. He's recognized that in the middle of this pressure situation, an insinuation has been made about the nature of God our Savior. And it's because of his heart, loyalty to Jehovah God, he's offended by that. And the offense over what is being done to God is so much overwhelming compared to the concerns politically down here on the wall that when he goes to pray, look at the issue that comes out. Not once in this prayer have we mentioned anything about the fear of the people. ...the core of the prayer. So he says, and now, Lord, just look what he's saying. To Do something neat to show yourself. These clowns have gone into one nation after another and they think they're pretty hot stuff. God, show them what happens now. They picked the wrong boy this time. Now you show them what's going to happen. And boy, did the Lord show them what's going to happen. And so Isaiah, son of Amos, sent the word to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, Because you have prayed... Look at this. Great answer. Because, see, the Lord responded immediately to that prayer. That kind of prayer got results. And immediately the answer comes to the prophet. See the role of the prophet? Always there is the go-between... This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. And through your servants you have reproached the Lord and you have said with many chariots, I come against the heights of the mountains to cut down the cedars. And he goes on this long episode, the fortified cities, verse 26. Verse 28. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in. You know what that expression means in verse 28? It's a Hebrew expression It means, I know you all the way to every hair in your head, pal. I'm omniscient. I know your heart. You're not going to hide from me. I know exactly what your attitude is. And you're raging against me. And because you're raging against me, because your arrogance has come up to my ears, Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And this will be a sign. And he goes on and gives you the various signs of the remnant. And We have to to speed up here. Verse 36. Here's a picture of how, how God got rid of him. The angel of the Lord went out. Now, you know who the angel of the Lord turns out to be? The Trinity is in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord we will find next year when we get into the Gospels is none other than God the Son. So when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now for everybody that thinks, and Jesus has a very mild, meek side, but you want to see the wrath of the Lamb, you got it right here. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what He does... He went out and he struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of those men were dead. You know how much 185,000 is in terms of today's army? What we have left of our army? Seven and a half divisions. Seven and a half divisions. Wiped out in one night by the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the prayer of one man. Can he do great things? Yeah. Yeah. Sure can. Look at that. And this is the toughest military units that existed at that time in history. This was such a devastating blow and such an embarrassment to the Assyrians that if you read Assyrian history, you read a broken document where Sennacherib brags that he, I have Hezekiah penned in like a bird. And then there's no victory stealing. Following it. It's a missing element. And it's always amazed historians of history that all the other campaigns, when Sennacherib says, I've got this guy bottled up, and the next phrase is, I wiped him out. Well, he brags about he got Hezekiah bottled up, but there's a missing document. No report of victory. There's no report of defeat either. Because obviously it was so embarrassing for him to come back to Syria. And it's like Napoleon going into Russia and coming back with the bare threads of the great grand army of France, and all he's got is a tag tail group of squads left after he went out with divisions. And he comes back with this mess, pieces left, of what was a fine military unit. And this is what Sennacherib wanders back to Nineveh with, after he met the Lord Jesus Christ outside the city of Jerusalem. So who's the victor here? This is one of those neat passages that shows you, if you turn to page 42 in the notes now, that's how, in history, with Isaiah explaining it all as they went, that's how they could see God at work and connect what He was doing with the promises of the Word of God. And in the last paragraph on page 42 before the number 2, the paragraph that begins Other Prophets. Just let me read through that so you can see that this is not an isolated theme peculiar to Isaiah. Other Prophets beside Isaiah also assured the nation of Yahweh's reign over the entire international scene. Nahum prophesied against Assyria, Habakkuk against Babylon, Zephaniah against Philistia, Moab, Amnon, and Ethiopia. In doing so, these prophets were really recalling the original basis of non-Hebrew civilization prior to the call of Abraham. God ruled over all the sons of Noah then, and He continued to do so in the days of these prophets. In no way had God become too weak to keep His promises to Abraham. So the paddle that is spanking Judea itself is in the hands of God Almighty. So the people have to understand that if they are being disciplined, the discipline itself also comes from the Sovereign Lord of history. So that's one theme. Now tonight I want to introduce the second theme, beginning in the bottom of page 42. And that's the theme that there's been a breaking of the covenant. The Sinaitic covenant has broken. And once the covenant is broken, that means that the Nation no longer has a claim on blessing because the cursings go into effect. Remember the Sinaitic covenant, it doesn't say what will happen. It says, however, obedience leads to blessing, disobedience leads to cursing. The nation is disobeyed, so now the cursings are in our operative. The prophetic voices now announce that the Sinaitic covenant is over. The Sinaitic covenant cursings go into effect, and the nation is now in deep, deep trouble. To do this, they are going to use a concept of a lawsuit. The Hebrew word for lawsuit uh, looks like this R I V, the Reeve. Pronounced R R E E V. The Reeve format is now picked up by the prophets. We know a little bit about the reformat format because it's used outside of Israel, outside of the Bible. And it, it's a process that invokes a, a broken law. So it's a lawsuit on the basis of a violation of law. Now, I've asked, um, if, if you read on page 43, uh, hopefully you've read a little bit of that. Um, what I want to do now tonight is introduce the reformat, format And we're going to have... Uh, three folks I've asked to read some of these verses. Uh, Warren, um, if you would, um, when I when I give the word here, if you read those verses in Isaiah for each of those three things, we're going to look first at the court procedure, then the indictment, then the announcement of judgment. And I, I want the rest of you, because you're going to be flipping around Scripture, just listen as the men read these passages. See if you can see the familiar theme. Just listen. Don't have to worry about reading it. Uh, Warren, if you take Isaiah... Um, Mike, if you take Hosea, Hosea 4.1, and um, yeah. let's see, 4.1, yeah, 4.2. Uh, and Larry, if you would take um, uh, Micah. Okay? Now, what I want to do, we're going to come back to this next week, because obviously we're, we're rushing to get into this, but I want you to see that there's a particular format. And the reason I want you to see this format is I want you to understand that the prophets were all coordinated. You tend to get the idea when you read your Bible, there's 16 books here, then these guys are just doing their own thing. Well, it kind of gives you that impression, except if you take a bigger view, who is it that's calling the prophets to do their ministries? It's God. Does God have a coherent message? You bet he does. It's different in different situations, but the approach of the prophets is the same. I'm doing this to just disprove what you usually get in the classroom where these guys are social reformers. No, they're not social reformers. Sorry. So, Warren, if you read Isaiah 1, 2 through 4. now notice the language hear O Israel I remember how it's started hear O heavens and so on notice that language okay Mike Hosea Okay, now see, notice that in, in the verse... When Mike started reading, what, did, what was the key vocabulary word? Did you notice? Did you hear what he said? The Lord has a what? The Lord has a case. There it is. Lawsuit. The prophet is bringing a lawsuit against the nation. Okay, now Micah. Just just verses one, 6, 1 to 4. Here now okay. Rise and keep your case, with them, and let your people hear your voices. Listen to me now. To In the indictment of the Lord, and you and your foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case with you. Even with Israel, he will disappear. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I here you? Answer I brought you up from the land of and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I send before you Moses, Aaron, and Aaron. Okay. See the similar language? What's going on in all three of these? The God is bringing a lawsuit. Now, what did we say back when we introduced covenants and contracts? Why did we say you make a contract? Why do we make contracts? To monitor behavior. And what happens? The contract gives you a standard to monitor the behavior. That's why you have warranties, and cars, and houses, and furnaces, and refrigerators. It's a standard that measures behavior. And so God is the one that actually authorized these contracts, and now the time has come to give an account of behavior. And so God, through the prophets, is giving an account of two issues. On the one hand, who has been faithful to the covenant? As Larry is reading that, what, what was he reading? I have done what? I have done this, I have done this, I have done that. Whose behavior is that? God's behavior. So in these lawsuits, is God saying, I was party to the covenant, I was faithful to the covenant, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you. Hear the voice of the Lord in these brief proceedings. And then Warren, when he read in Isaiah, what's the attack against the people? I mean, come on, you people are acting worse than animals. The animal knows who's his master is and you idiots don't. So it's an indictment about the behavior of man over against the behavior of God, the two parties to the covenant. Who has been faithful and who has been unfaithful. Okay, the second issue is the indictment. Now, we'll get into that next next week because our time is up, but uh, we want to conclude by turning to Deuteronomy 32 and I want to look at one verse. Back Last year, I made a point, after we dealt with the um, Sinaitic Covenant, I said when it was all done, Moses left them with a national anthem. And I made a point, remember, how our national anthem, Fort McHenry, narrates the great battle in the Baltimore Harbor. It's a part of history. This national anthem, in Scripture, is not only a narration of history past, it's a narration of history future. And this Deuteronomy chapter 32, I want you, in the light of these three guys that just re- read that scripture, now you listen to what Warren said. Um, I think, Mike, in your passage, it was here, the mountains, wasn't it? Here. forgot what Hosea said. It was here. And, and Larry, what? in yours, it was. Uh, was there a here passage? Here. What was it? Addressed to the hills? So, what, I think, Mike, wasn't it addressed to the hills in your case? Okay, oh, sons of Israel. So the people being addressed in that are the sons of Israel. In Warren's case, however, in Isaiah, the addressees were heavens and earth. And I think, Larry, in yours it was mountains. Okay? Now, isn't this interesting? Why do you suppose that? that? That ought to grab your attention right away. And look at verse 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 32. He says, he opens the national anthem, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the voice of my mouth. There's in, Deuteronomy 32 is the source of the lawsuit proceedings administered later by the prophets. What happens in a courtroom trial? Who is critical oftentimes in a case, in a courtroom? If somebody has committed a crime, besides circumstantial evidence, what will the prosecutor really likes? Eyewitnesses, right? The witness plays a big role. Now, who in the national anthem of Israel is called to be witness? Let's, let's think this one through here. Just take a minute. Why, in verse 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 32 is a set of witnesses called to watch the covenant and they are called back as Larry points out from Micah Warren mentioned that Isaiah is coming back they call upon the witnesses that were established here who really are the witnesses do you think you think the hills and the it's just the hills and just the rock and just the trees or do you think that behind the hills and the heavens there's the angelic observers. You see, the angelic observers were the witnesses in this grand case. The case, God against man. The issue, the covenant. Who are the observers that are witnessing this? The angelic beings. Who are invoked by the prophets? Who has done this? And they call, as they summon the courtroom proceedings to the lawsuit format, they call upon the witnesses. So. We'll go push this further next Thursday night. But what I want you to see is there's an awful lot going on in the prophets. They're not just saying, you are sinners. You guys did social unrighteous acts. It's far more grandiose than that. There's There's a whole plan and a schema behind these guys. And we just saw tonight, in a few minutes, three different men three different ministries in three different historic situations all doing exactly the same thing following the format of the original law in Deuteronomy 32. Pure accident? Or was that God's design? Father, we thank You that You are consistent. That as this quote that we studied tonight said, with You we know where we stand because You are faithful to a covenant. You outline exactly what You want us to do You tell us exactly what your promises are. And no matter how many centuries go by, and whoever and how great the opponent is, you are always faithful to uphold your promises. We ask that your Spirit illuminate our hearts to this side of your nature so we can worship you in a deeper and more powerful way. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. want to talk about. It. We just have a few minutes, so. Yes. Even though that's the way it appears obvious, but I've always been cautious about saying that because. Debbie raised this issue. Um, We'll get into this more next year when we get into the Lord Jesus Christ because that's going to be the set of events, the the uh, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, the four great events then. What Debbie's raised here is an issue that she said she wants to be cautious about identifying Jesus Christ with the angel of Jehovah because the Jehovah's Witnesses interpret Jesus to be an angel only. And if you make this identification, are you not playing into the hands of Jehovah's Witness when you do that? Um, the way to protect that from happening, the problem is with Jehovah's Witnesses, they're basically what we call Arians, A R I A N S. This is an ancient heresy. It was the second century, third century. They, it's just regurgitated Arianism. But The church dealt with that a long time ago, and that's why they have the creeds. And, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses will always tell you, oh, that's the Trinity is not in the Bible, and it was imported into the church. Because what they're angry at is that the church took three or 400 years thinking through how to defend themselves against Arianism, and that's when they defined the Trinity. But anyway, um, the way to do that is to show very carefully, and you can very easily, show that the angel Jehovah has exactly the same set of attributes that Jehovah has. And you do this with a concordance. Uh, It takes a little while to do this, but it's already been done for you. Um, One of the great books on this is called Our Lord Jesus Christ by John Walvoord of Dallas Seminary. and He has a whole thick chapter. He goes through every single reference you want to ever think about. On this, There's a passage, you know, I think in the 40s somewhere, it's, I've slipped my mind, but the Trinity is present in Isaiah. Because there's this passage where it says, um, The Lord has called me and put upon me His Spirit. And it's, Jesus later uses that passage for Himself. So it's quite clear that the Trinity, while not uh, detailed in the Old Testament, is implicit in it. And the angel of Jehovah is always the part of Jehovah, if I can use that word, that shows up and does things. Like he comes to Hagar. Um, He does things like you saw him tonight. Um, Interesting, uh, it's sort of um, providential, by the way. The name of the last prophet in the Bible, in the English Bible, before Matthew, is Malachi. Well, Malachi is, is my messenger. My my angel, and it's sort of neat that that precedes the gospel. But the angel of Jehovah is clearly distinct from all other angels, and the reason it, he is is that everywhere else, when angels appear to men and men attempt to bow to them, they're they're rebuked. The angel will not a, a real angel will not permit people to worship him, because you see it in the New Testament, very interesting. John is so overwhelmed that he starts to. Worship the angel, and he says, "Don't you do that? I am of the same as your brethren." And it's a neat passage. I mean, here's this powerful angel, you know, and these, whatever these beings are, these angels, they're just awesome, apparently, in, in what they can do. Um, the non, non angel of Jehovah, just the normal angel, um, there's some neat things that stunned me when I first learned Greek. And I start translating these passages, and there's that time when Peter was in jail in the book of Acts. And uh, the King James text says something about the angel came along and, I guess, smoked Peter or something because he was sleeping. And actually, the, the Greek emphasis is more that the angel reached down and grabbed him and pulled him up like this. And then, interestingly, after he woke Peter up and got him, you know, duh, got, got, got him staggering, and then the angel said, okay, now put on your coat. And the angel wouldn't dress them. You dressed yourself. I just woke you up. And but, so they're neat beings. And this, this witnessing passage here, the angels are witnesses, and they are Jehovah's witnesses. <laughs> and this is a neat perversion of the whole thing, um, because I believe that these passages that we talked about tonight, where they um, give ear, O heavens, give the earth, that the angels are the witnesses, and that they are called upon to give. It's as though they are called upon to give almost like a tape recording and video of history. And what's kind of somewhat disturbing is that in Ephesians and in Corinthians they are said to patrol the congregation because there's a passage, that mysterious passage, you know, in Corinthians talking about women and... the hair issue there and the veil, however you translate the veil. Um, all that, you say, it's minutia. And then all in the middle of the text comes this little clause, do it because of the angels. And he's talking about a worship service. So uh, apparently, if we could see, the angels do gather together with us when we worship and they watch. And it's, it's sort of, if those guys are doing to us what they were doing to Israel, it's almost like they're sitting here taking videos of what are what we're doing spiritually and you know we get on dog do you know all the times we were minds were elsewhere um, so they apparently do do this but the angel of jehovah if you go to a concordance and track that term it's obvious that he is not an ordinary angel and the only the only way to prove that is go to a concordance and prove it. But these guys don't want to do that. It's so sad. Because Jehovah's Witnesses, you know where they got the term Jehovah's Witnesses? from Isaiah. And I even found the verse once. I was going through some Jehovah's Witness material. And it's again right near the passage where the Trinity is. And it says, You shall be witnesses to me. And the sad thing about it is the witnesses to me, the one who's the me in there, is the angel of Jehovah. That's what's so ironic. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, they got real problems. Are there any other questions? Anybody want to discuss about prophets since we're on it? So if you have some questions, I might not be able to answer them right now, but it would clue me and get me straightened out for next week because I do want to cover some of these these things. We're covering an awful lot of Old Testament material and very quickly. So, if you do have any questions about prophets, let me know so we can try to focus on those. I just want to give you a broad brush of where these, who these guys are and what they're doing. Tonight, we just broke the ground to see that they are involved in very serious litigation. Okay? Okay.